Amen. I promise you that the people on Palm Sunday did not do any better singing Hosanna and praise the Lord than you all have done this morning. We enjoy the music so much. Today we're at Luke 23, 33 and John 19, 26. Luke 23, 33 and John 19, 26. We're going to do something today I've never done before. We're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. We're just going to, this is Holy Week. We are celebrating today the last ordinary Sunday in history. From this Sunday on, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We have celebrated for 2,000 years. This is the last ordinary Sunday in the history of the world. It's Palm Sunday. And so I thought as we look to this week and what's happening this week, I thought you might like to take a few notes and just remind yourself, maybe one day take one of the sayings and and work a little bit with it. And just, just as we get through Holy Week, take the seven sayings from the cross and see if they might be a blessing to you. Ruthie's going to read all seven of them to us one at a time as I, I teach about them. And I think that you'll be blessed. I trust that you will be. It's been a tough night for Jesus. His right-hand man, Simon Peter, denied that he knew him. In fact, to make sure that nobody would accuse him of being a friend of Jesus, he cursed Simon Peter knew if he cursed, no one would ever again accuse him of being a friend of Jesus. The same is still true today. If you don't want people to know that you're a follower of Jesus, your mouth will take care of that for you. Judas Iscariot betrayed our master. He's gone out and hanged himself in the body. The Bible says his body broke loose. It fell headlong and his bowels gushed out. And Jesus said, it had been good for that man if he had never been born. The high priest Caiaphas got so angry at Jesus that he took his robe and he tore it. Just in a fit of anger, he ripped it. And the Old Testament forbade the high priest to ever tear his garment. So even the high priest is picturing the fact that the priesthood is done. It's over. The crowd that on Palm Sunday sang like you sang today. Now just a few days later, they're saying, crucify, crucify. And Pontius Pilate is just washing his hands. He has Jesus scourged. He has a crown of thorns put on his head. And then he gives him to the soldiers. And the soldiers take him from there. And Simon the Cyrenian has the great privilege and pleasure of lifting the cross off of Jesus. According to the Gospel of Mark, his two sons became believers. So there's always been a long tradition that Simon the Cyrenian may have become a believer. If so, I look forward to the day when I can ask him when there was no one else what did it feel like to reach down and pick the cross off the back of the Savior. And then they continued. Luke 23, 33, the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Just keep your Bibles there at Luke 23 and John 19 in just a little bit. 
If there was ever anyone who had the right to hold a grudge, it was Jesus. Did you hear all the things I just said that had just happened to him? Now here he is on a cross, and soldiers are gambling over his garments. And he looks down, and he says, Father, forgive them. Learn a lesson and never forget it. The only way that pain in a family, pain in a relationship, the only way that hurt can be stopped is for somebody to take the hurt into themselves. If you don't, it keeps bouncing around like a ping pong. You keep getting back. You get your little word in. You get the last word in. You keep going like this. It just bounces around. The only hope is for someone finally to say, that's it. It's going to stop with me. I'm going to let the hurt stop here. That's what Jesus did. He did not revile. He did not seek revenge. He was hurt, but yet he took all of the hurt into himself. So here he is on the cross looking down at soldiers gambling for his garment. This was the way that soldiers got paid to be the executioners. They got the clothing or anything of the one being executed. So our master is hanging between heaven and earth as if worthy of neither, as if unwanted by both, totally unclothed. In ultimate humiliation, unclothed, so that you and I could someday be clothed in heaven. It is very important to know that in heaven we're not going to be naked. We're not going back to the Garden of Eden. See, Adam and Eve were made in innocence. There is no more innocence. We were all sinners. We're not going back to the Garden of Eden. In heaven, the Bible is very clear, we will wear robes. Why is that? Because in the ancient world, to the Hebrews, to the early Christians, a robe was a symbol of something that was not inherent to you. It's something you had to put on. And the reason you're going to be in heaven, you're going to have a robe on to remind you that you're in heaven not because of anything inherent in you, not because you as an individual were good enough to be there. You're going to be in heaven because you put righteousness on. The master became unclothed that you might be clothed, that you might put this robe on, And say, I have righteousness, not because of anything I did, but because of what someone else did. And your robe in heaven will be white, because Jesus' robe will be red. It's in the book of Revelation. Check it out. You will have a white robe. Jesus will have a red robe. Every time through all of eternity, when you look at Jesus, you will be reminded why you are there. That's the first one. Now the second saying. Luke, tw- Luke, 33, Luke 23, 39. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who were dangerous was paying a visit to Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we can do justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Two criminals on each side. He's obviously in the place of Barabbas, the ringleader of the criminals. He's right where Barabbas was going to be. And so there's two malefactors here, two criminals. And they're looking at Jesus. One of them is joining in the taunting of the crowd. Come on, come on, save us, save us. The other one is seeing something in this man who is totally unclothed, totally humiliated, his body whipped, wearing a crown of thorns, 
And somehow he sees in him a king. And not only does he see a king, he sees a man going into his kingdom. Now, when I get to heaven, I'm going to, have to talk to Simon Serene. I'm also going to talk to the criminal. And I'm going to say, what did you see in a humiliated, defaced, marred person that made you know he was a king? How in the world could you have believed for one second that this man was going into a kingdom. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. I'm going to find out. There was something about Jesus, about his person, about who he was, that if people were willing to see, if they were willing to look, he was there. They got it. It's the same way today. If you're willing to look, if you're willing to measure, if you're willing to try to understand, you'll see it. He is the king. He's the one who brings the kingdom. That's number two. Now, number three, in John 19, 26. John 19, 26. Number three. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Sufferers are proverbially selfish. Blessed are you if you can suffer and care about others. It certainly makes you a lot like Jesus. Now here he is suffering as badly as any human being has ever suffered. And what has he done? He has prayed for soldiers. He's going to take a malefactor to heaven with him. He is honoring his heavenly father. And he looks down and he sees his mother. And in one moment's time, he showed us forevermore how we should treat our parents. He told us how to obey the fifth commandment. In one moment of time, he looked down and he saw his mother, and he saw his best friend, and so he said to his mother, Behold your son. And to the son, he said, I want you to take care of my mother. Now, it's an interesting story. Here's Jesus dying a substitute for the world, and he took care of his mother. Now, now listen to me. I was once pastor of an elderly lady who would live all winter in one room of her house because she couldn't afford a utility bill. And all of her children did well in life. Listen to me. If you live in a nice setting till your mom and daddy die, you make sure they're cared for. If you've got good clothes, you make sure they've got good clothes. If you drive a nice car, you make sure they drive a nice car. Everything that you have, you need to make sure that your parents have. That's what Jesus taught us. Here he is, a substitute for the whole world. And he looks down and he thinks, oh my, I'm the firstborn son. I've got to do something about mama here. And so he sees his friend. And he who was a substitute for the world asked John to be his substitute to take care of his mother. Now, this is interesting because Jesus had seven siblings. Did you know Jesus was one of seven siblings? He had four brothers and at least two sisters. It's in Mark chapter 6. Verse 3, for all you cynics out there, okay? Mark chapter 6, verse 3, tells us that Jesus was one of at least seven children. Now the question is, why did he pick a friend above his family? And the reason is because his family did not believe in him. 
Not until after the resurrection did his family become believers. But here he has one who is of the same mind, who has a kindred spirit. And so he says, I want you. You agree with me about God, about life, about how to raise them, how to take care of your mother, how to do things. I want you to take care of her. That's number three. Now, number four, you'll not look this one up. This is in Mark. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. Ruth, read it for us. Number four, Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then came the darkness. Midnight darkness from noon to 3 p.m. Three hours, too long to be an eclipse, and also it's Passover. It's a full moon. It's impossible to have a solar eclipse when it's a full moon. Totally a miracle. Something is happening here. It is in this darkness that Jesus does ultimate business with the Father. What we, we talk often about what Jesus did for us at the cross, and we should. That, that's only right that we would do that. But there was something Jesus was doing at the cross more important than what he was doing for us. More important than what he did for us was what he was doing for his father. He was reestablishing his reputation, as it were. He was proving that he was loving and yet at the same time holy. He was paying the price, the debt of sin that was owed to him. He's doing business with the father. So when he arrives at Calvary, he's got to take care of the soldiers. He's prayed for them. The Lord lets him see the dying thief and he lets him pray for him. And then... The Lord let him see his mother and his friend. But then at high noon, when it came time for the father and the son to do business with each other, the father said, no one will see this. I'll give you three hours to look at him in his humiliation. Enough for you to know that when it came to the critical hour, The Father darkened the earth. And in that darkness, your sin was carried under the Father. In that darkness, your debt was paid. In that darkness came your life. Angels had come in the wilderness. Angels came in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Michael, the great fighting warrior angel, I'm sure Michael headed for his chariot, and as my guess, he hit that chariot, he grabbed the reins of those horses, and he was coming. You can almost hear the horses, can't you? You can imagine it, you get it in your imagination, and you can see it, they're coming. And all of a sudden, Michael says, let us go, Father, let us go. And suddenly the father says, no, no. Do you hear me, Michael? No. And the question is, why? It would only take in a second. <laughs> the angels could take care of business. They could have taken care of us, rescued the son. What's going on here? The only answer I've ever found to the question that satisfied me was one that my daddy taught me when he told me this story when I was a little boy. 
Why did God the Father not let the angels come? Why did God let His Son die? Only one answer. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how my daddy taught me my favorite Bible verse, John 3.16, was answering this question, why did Jesus do this? Would you say that loud with me, please? You ready? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is the only explanation that can be understood. That's number four. Now, number five. John nineteen twenty-eight. John nineteen twenty-eight. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Thirst is the off-scouring of a wound. People who suffer from open wounds as the body fluids are lost, you're losing more than just blood when you wound yourself. You're losing body fluids, and so the cells begin to dehydrate, and the body craves water. They tell us that on a battlefield, when the battle is first over, you hear all the groanings from the pain of the wounds. But that there comes that moment when the screaming for water becomes louder than the crying of the pain from the wound. And that's what's happening to Jesus. As he's dying, crucified, body fluids are leaving, and his cells are dehydrating, and he's beginning to feel this agony of being thirsty. Is it not interesting that thirst is maybe the number one characteristic of hell that we talk about? The rich man died and he went to hell. And he looked up and saw Abraham and he saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And what did the rich man say? Do you remember? He said, would you have Lazarus dip his finger In a cup of water. And would you just let him touch my tongue? It is one of the most vivid pictures of hell. In all of scripture. Here you have the son of God. On the cross. Bearing your hell. This is what he is doing. He was the maker of rain. He could have said. Could I have some rain? I'll open my mouth. He, He was the creator of rivers. He could have said. Could we have a river flow by here. And somebody give me something to drink. No, he didn't. Why did he thirst? He thirsted so that you would never have to spiritually thirst again. So that you will never have the feeling where you wish somebody would dip their finger in water and put it on your tongue. That's number five. Now, number six. John 19.30. Number six, John 19.30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Actually, if, we want to, if you want to hit the real meaning, you want to hit the meaning hard, he was saying mission accomplished. He was saying it was done. He knew exactly when he had drunk your cup of damnation dry. He knew the exact moment. When he'd paid the sin debt, he knew it had happened. Chris, Christmas Evans, a great Welsh preacher, said 
that death on the cross rammed a fiery dart right into the heart of Jesus. But when death pulled the dart out, the sting was left behind. One of the most neglected parts of the crucifixion story. We talk about how that Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world, and that's true. We almost never talk about the fact that since all sin was in his body, he nailed sin to the cross. See, not only is Jesus nailed to the cross, sin in him, your sin, my sin, put into his perfect body, it has also been crucified. And which one came from the grave on Sunday morning? Was it the sin or was it the sin destroyer? It was the sin destroyer. And sin has been defeated ever since. Jesus drained hell, damnation, all of it. It's gone. It's done. The victory is yours if you know him and the power of his resurrection. He took your cup. And when he got done... There was not even one drop left in it. He bore it all. There was nothing left for anybody to do for you to go to heaven once Jesus had paid the price. Now, here's my question for this this quote. If God the Father is totally satisfied with what Jesus did, why aren't you? Why are there so many of you in this room today who are still trying to earn God's favor to go to heaven? Was his death not enough? Would you say to God the Father, you might think it's good enough, but I'm not going to think it's good enough. You've heard me say it twice. Now I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it till Jesus comes again. Get used to hearing it. People don't go to heaven because they're good. They don't go to hell because they're bad. If I had only one more sermon to preach in my lifetime, that's the sermon I'd preach. People don't go to heaven because they're good. They don't go to hell because they're bad. Jesus came from heaven to die for the sins of the world. He took the sin debt into himself. He took the punishment. He took it all. Now, the issue is not sin. The issue is Jesus. If you know Jesus, if you repent, if you turn from sin, if you come to Christ... If you know Him, your sins are covered and you will go to heaven when you die. If you do not come to Jesus, you will not go to heaven when you die. He's it. He's the ultimate issue. He has paid the sin debt of the world. And you must lean totally on Him. Uh, One of the great tragedies of modern Christianity, it grieves me every time I think of it, is the fact that Mother Teresa died thinking she probably was going to go to hell. She grew up in a system that taught salvation is by works. You have to earn it. You have to be good enough. And see, the problem of believing that is you can never know when you've done enough. If you right here in this room, if you think you have to earn your way to heaven, how are you ever going to know that you've done enough? Who wants to work for a boss that you never know if you satisfy them or you ever please them? If your boss treated you that way, you'd think they're awful. Would you make God be like that? So what did God do? God said, rather than you worry about it and be burdened about it and struggle with it, He said, I'm going to provide a way so that they know. If they put their trust in me, they can be confident. They can be sure. It's what the old Puritans, I love this word. It's what the old Puritans call the doctrine of recumbency. 
I like that word. Recumbent means to lie down flat. A recumbent statue like Robert E. Lee at his, if you've ever been to his grave, he's lying down like he's resting. That's a recumbent statue. The Puritans said the way that you are saved, the way you go to heaven is... You lie down flat on Jesus in your heart. You just say, Lord Jesus, if you don't save me, I'm going to bust hell wide open. My only hope is what you have done for me. One of the greatest men I ever knew. I've got some friends here from 35 years ago. One of the greatest men that we ever knew. In fact, we were talking about him just before I came in here. We'd say, brother, are, are, how do you feel about your salvation? He'd say, well, I hope I'm saved. It just burdened my heart. He's one of the finest men I ever knew. Say, yeah, I hope I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I so desperately wish I could have somehow convinced him to be recumbent. It's not about us. It's not anything we do. Sure, we live our life pleasing Him. We live our life serving Him. We want to be holy and God. It has nothing to do with going to heaven. We go to heaven because we are recumbent. We just, we just totally say, Lord Jesus, this is it. You're my only hope. That's number six. Now, number seven. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God and saying, Surely this man was innocent. My grandpa Marshall was a country preacher. And uh, my grandpa Marshall said that this sentence, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, was the most majestic and greatest thing that Jesus ever said. That takes some explaining, doesn't it? Why would my grandpa say that this is the greatest thing that his master, his beloved Lord, said? Grandpa thought it was the most majestic thing Jesus said because, he says, John, it it proves to us that Jesus could have lived on the cross forever had he wanted to. It proves to us that we did not kill Jesus. We crucified him. We certainly put the nails in him. We, We certainly did that. But we didn't really kill him. He could have lasted forever had he wanted to. Grandpa thought this was so important because it proved that Jesus is not only the sacrifice... He's also the priest who offers the sacrifice. He said, son, a dead sacrifice is not enough. There has to be a priest who comes, brings the sacrifice, applies it to our lives. One in whom we can trust. We know that we can confide in him. We can be confident. And my grandpa said that when Jesus said, Father, I commend, it was Jesus giving his life. It was Jesus giving the sacrifice. It was Jesus, the priest, offering the lamb. And that's so important because now, three days later when he rises from the dead, and that's the sermon for next Sunday is the resurrection. When he rises from the dead, he was not only the sacrifice, he's the priest who offers it. 
And therefore he comes by means of the Holy Spirit. He comes to us. And he says, here is the sacrifice. It is paid. The Father is satisfied. The Holy Spirit will convict you. But I'm the priest. Jesus says, I'm the priest. I come and I bring this to you. And I pray that you will take this gift. I think that's enough for today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Now where does this message meet you? One of those seven, I am confident, touched you somewhere. Why don't you pray about that? Why don't you go back to that moment in this sermon and just say, Oh, Lord God. Never saw it before. Never realized that. I didn't know it. Oh, God. Oh, God. 